BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 205 of the Bowery Boys, the disappearance of Dorothy Arnold. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Presenting one of the most famous mysteries in New York City history. This is the story of Dorothy Arnold, who seemingly vanished from existence on December 12th, 1910. Today, we'll be investigating this story, which captivated and intrigued New Yorkers in 1910 and for decades that followed. It's a mystery that centered around a New York socialite whose life dramatically changed one day when she headed off to Midtown on a shopping trip. Now, many of you have watched mystery television shows, anything from Jessica Fletcher on Murder, She Wrote, to maybe a little Law and Order. So have a little bit of that detective work in the back of your mind while you listen to the show, because this tale is rife with suspicious figures, you know, acting with rather shadowy motivations. And of course, we'll be taking our modern detective work and looking back at this story that's over 100 years old. That's right. We're going back just after the turn of the century, just after the end of the Gilded Age, to a city that was rapidly expanding, bursting with new arrivals, yet the city was fixated and captivated on something seemingly criminally afoot in high society. And they weren't just captivated for a few months. This story kept in the news for decades and was not just of interest of New Yorkers, but of people around the world. If anything, I think it's kind of strange that today so little is known or remembered about this case. And it's interesting because we live in a world of high surveillance today. We always are being watched by a camera or by other people. But we're going to go back to a period where it seemed very, very likely that you could truly disappear from the streets of New York. So join us as we investigate the dramatic disappearance of Dorothy Arnold. Well, Tom, before we go to that particular day in cold December 
of 1910. Why don't we actually learn about the cast of characters here? Because we'll be spending quite a bit of time with some of them. Yes, we will. Primarily with Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold. She was born on July 1st, 1886, into a wealthy and very well-connected New York family that traced its lineage all the way back to the Mayflower. So true American blue bloods. Yes, her father Francis Rose Arnold and mother Mary Martha Parks Arnold had four children. She had an older brother and a younger brother and a sister. They lived very comfortably at 108 East 79th Street, just east of Park Avenue. And on the Upper East Side. And in 1910, this area was already developing as the place for wealthy families to build their residences. And in fact, the Grand Central Railroad tracks had just been newly covered over. Making the neighborhood much more alluring for well-to-do families. Very, very, very fancy, or to use a Bowery Boys word, Tony, making it a Tony neighborhood. They, they weren't just well-off, they were actually rich, Greg. And they were occupied, sort of socially, by everything you might expect in New York in the early 1900s. By debutante balls, by nights at the opera, wearing fashionable custom-made clothing, and excellent private schooling. So what was the occupation of Mr. Arnold? Well, Francis ran a successful business importing fancy goods, quote-unquote, and perfumes. His company was called F.R. Arnold and & Company, and their office was down on West 22nd Street, just off of Ladies Mile. A little research turned up a couple products mm-hmm. uh, that I could trace back to F.R. Arnold & Company, among other things. There's some very fancy perfume. Check this out. I'm holding an advertisement for... The fashionable perfume, Crab Apple Blossoms, with an angel blowing a trumpet. And the celebrated Crown Lavender Salts. Yes, wow. those were two different products right there. Um, let me just, re- mm-hmm. from the ad, no articles of the toilets have ever been produced which have been received with the enthusiasm which has greeted the Crab Apple Blossom perfume and soap and the Crown Lavender Salts. They are literally the delight of two worlds and are as eagerly sought in London and Paris as in New York. So what you're saying is the, the Arnold's wealth was built on good sense. <laughs> yes, or at least importing good sense. Yes. So he wasn't literally producing uh, these, these crab apple blossoms, but he was importing them from, from London mm-hmm. for sale. And it says here, looking bold letters, beware of fraudulent imitations put up by unprincipled dealers. So make sure when you're buying your crab apple blossoms <laughs> that you get the right one. And then this one looks a little bit less glamorous. It's a bottle that just says Arnold's Vegetable Hair Balsam. Oh, my hair balsam. Who knows what kind of patent medicine that was. Oh. I'm, not sure I'd, I'm not sure that either <laughs> of us would want to rub that into our scalp. <laughs> but these were the kinds of products that were produced, imported, wholesaled through her father's company. And so these made the Arnold family very wealthy, and this is what Dorothy kind of grew up around. Yes, but Dorothy's family connections went beyond her father's commercial success because without question, the most famous and respected member of the family was her uncle, the Supreme Court Justice Rufus W. Peckham. Justice Peckham. So how was he related to Dorothy here? Justice Peckham was married to Dorothy's father's sister, Harriet Maria Arnold. And Peckham was really well connected as well. He had connected to the likes of Rockefeller and Vanderbilt and J.P. Morgan and was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1894 by President Grover Cleveland 
serving from 1895 until 1909. A man of some prominence, and so too is his family. So Dorothy grew up in a rather privileged setting. She attended private schools in New York City and then attended Bryn Mawr College outside Philadelphia, where she studied literature, and she nurtured a desire to become an author or a journalist one day. She was described as having, quote, fine features with attractive manners, a favorite in the social set in which she moved. And when did she study at Bryn Mawr? She graduated in 1905, mm -hmm. and then she moved back into the family home on the Upper East Side, and from here she tried her hand at writing for a living. She wrote a couple of articles that we know about today in 1910, one called The Poinsettia and the Flame, another one called Lotus Leaves, for McClure's Magazine. Unfortunately, her writing didn't draw in the editors of the magazines, who sent their, their rejection slips back up to East 79th Street. So these never got published. No. And I don't think that her family was necessarily disappointed. They sort of teased her about these writing ambitions. Why did she want to be a writer? She didn't need to be a writer or to be publishing. It was just unnecessary. You know, why not just settle down and live a comfortable family existence and move sure. on with society? Well, this writing could, you know, take her in all sorts of unexpected directions. She could become a bohemian. Well, funny you should bring that up because despite these rejection slips, she thought that maybe the problem was her house on the Upper East Side. And so she tried to rent uh, an apartment down in Greenwich Village, a sort of writing flat where she could just head down and, and just devote herself to writing these articles and get away from the family. She rented a P.O. box outside of the family home as well so that she wouldn't have to be embarrassed by rejection letters or correspondence coming back and forth from magazines. And you can imagine what an extraordinary life that would have been to live in Greenwich Village in 1910, you know, where so much creativity was being fostered with all the writers and artists who were hanging out there. Yes, but it wasn't to be, for her father scoffed at those ambitions and basically said to her, look, a good writer can write anywhere. And so she stayed put, although she was incredibly disappointed. Well, imagine, like, feeling so almost held prisoner then in your own house. She wasn't allowed to really live the dreams that she wanted to, to do, the things she wanted to pursue. According to a book called Among the Missing by J. Robert Nash, Dorothy wrote about her literary failure to herself. She wrote, quote, McClure's has turned me down. Failure stares me in the face. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. And later she writes, Mother will always think it was an accident. And so this brings us to Miss Dorothy Arnold in December of 1910. Dorothy Arnold, who would like to be living and writing downtown, but still lives with her parents at the age of 25. Dorothy Arnold, whose father would like her to find a nice young man who works for a living and can provide for her and has a respectable family and position in life. Dorothy Arnold, who on this December day was primarily occupied with what to wear to her younger sister Marjorie's upcoming debutante ball. According to a later article in the New York Times, on December 12th, 1910, at about 11 o'clock in the morning, Miss Arnold informed her mother that she was going downtown to purchase an evening dress. She had a bank account of her own, as well as an account at several of the stores. I'll go along with you and help you select the gown, said Mrs. Arnold. But no, she replied, when I find the gown I want, I will telephone you, and you can come down and see it. 
Miss Arnold left the house at 11.30. And so she walked downtown, a nice walk to 59th Street and 5th Avenue, to the Park and Tilford candy store. She got there at about noon. Dorothy was about five foot four, with brown hair and grayish blue eyes. On this day, she wore a blue tailor-made coat suit and a black velvet hat trimmed with two blue roses. She carried a black handbag with about 20 or $30 inside. At the Park and Tilford candy store at 59th and 5th, she bought a box of chocolates, which she placed inside her fox muff and charged it to her father's account. And then she headed back out onto the street and then down 5th Avenue to Brentano's bookstore at 27th and 5th Avenue. She arrived at the bookstore around 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon, and she browsed the shelves and decided to purchase a novel, Engaged Girl Sketches, by Emily Calvin Blake. Back out on Fifth Avenue, she ran into an old friend, another socialite, Gladys King. They chatted about society things, including the upcoming debutante ball, and then Gladys headed off to the Waldorf Astoria, just up the street at 34th Street and 5th Avenue, to have lunch with her mom. But Dorothy continued north. She planned to walk home all the way up 5th Avenue and through Central Park, back to her house. She seemed to be in perfectly good spirits as she waved goodbye to her friend Gladys. Gladys turned around to wave goodbye at Dorothy again. Dorothy smiled, waved her hand, and continued to walk up 5th Avenue. So that evening, the evening of December 12th, 1910, the Arnold family gathered around the dinner table for their nightly supper, but Dorothy was not there. She wasn't home yet. So she'd had a, you know, she had a penchant for wandering around by herself. Like she loved walking. She was unique that way that she loved these long walks, but dinner was soon over and Dorothy still wasn't home. Her mother began calling around to Dorothy's friends, and I should note that later, the Arnolds would retrace all of these phone calls that they would make and tell all of her friends to not tell the police that they had called on this very first evening after dinner. Hmm. Did they know anything? Were they, were they worried about her whereabouts? Well, she kind of did this sort of thing a little bit often, but some of her friends were a little worried. One of them, a friend named Elsie called back after midnight and chatted with Mrs. Arnold to make sure that Dorothy was okay. And Mrs. Arnold told Elsie that Dorothy was in fact home and had a headache and had already gone to bed. But had she come back? No, she did not return. But why would her mother say this? Had they, had they called the police? Believe it or not, they did not call the police. They didn't call the police for six weeks. They kind of wanted to, in fact, in these early days at least, they wanted to cover the whole thing up. The Arnolds didn't want to publicize this. They didn't want to get the police involved because you've got the police involved, you've got the police reporters involved. Mm. And by the virtue of her status, Dorothy Arnold was a famous person. You know, she was related, at least, to a famous person, being a niece of a Supreme Court justice. Even though he had passed away the year before... The, the family was still famous. The name was still notable, and she was still in society pages herself. The Arnolds were perhaps, though, not just afraid of the reporters, but of their own personal social standing. They're standing in the social register here. Let us not forget that her sister was going to be 
coming out in a debutante ball the next week. And so this is perhaps where we might even see a little bit of Dorothy's personality. Did the family know a little bit more? Did they know that maybe she was depressed? Did they know that perhaps she was a little bit out of sorts? Did they know that she was angry? But wait, if their daughter is missing, and you said that they didn't call the police for six weeks, what in the world were they doing? Well, were they, they taking they, on the investigation themselves? Well, they started by calling up a young friend, a young lawyer named John Keith, who was a good friend of Dorothy. Sometimes he's described as being quite fond of Dorothy. He began his own sleuthing around. Among his initial search in their own home, a few curious things that he found in her room that he would testify about later. On her desk were letters with foreign postmarks. There were a couple folders there with details about voyages on transatlantic steamships. But perhaps most unusual, perhaps more telling, were ashes in the fireplace. Some paper that had been burned. And it's believed that that is the remains of her short story, the, this love story that had been rejected by McClure magazine. Well, Keith became quite frantic and began searching around at morgues, mental institutions around the city. So this man, Mr. Keith, handled this entire investigation by himself? Well, for a while. But then, as you could tell, it's getting a little bit out of hand here. He can't visit all of these places, and he right. needs someone with more expertise. So they eventually hire members of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Now, Pinkerton, this is a famous detective company, right? It's probably the world's most famous detective organization. It was originally based in Chicago and started in 1850. Now, in the mid-19th century, it was associated with the federal government. President Abraham Lincoln even deployed them in secret missions. And they were often employed by the government to track down legendary bank robbers, like Jesse James, and other thieves, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But anybody with enough money could hire them to investigate some private affairs as well. Oh, sure. I mean, they were top-notch, if a little tarnished by the early 20th century, but still a very top-notch organization. So they arrived, and they worked through Christmas and into the new year of 1911, and turned up nothing. Mm. A later newspaper quote from the New York Sun, Superintendent Daughtry of the Pinkertons said that the case was among the most mysterious that had ever come to his attention. But again, this seems kind of incredible, right? That weeks are going by and they're not going to the authorities. And this is just because of the social standing and, and the potential for embarrassment? Well, one can read it that way, that in retrospect, yes, this seemed like a very bad idea. But maybe in the moment, they thought they could wrap this up rather quickly and quietly. Because uh, they didn't know, perhaps she had run off, or eloped with somebody, perhaps. Sure. It was something that could be embarrassing that they didn't want to draw attention to. Right. So either the Arnold's new information that led them to believe they could wrap this up quickly or they were covering up something a little bit darker. Well, finally, on January 24th, 1911, they did go to the police, and then, of course, the press found out about it. The following day, on the 25th, they actually had a press conference in the parlor of their home here on 79th Street, offering a reward of $1,000 for any person with any information. Now, the day after that, on January 26th, the New York Sun, on the front page, it was the top story of the day. So this truly grabbed everyone's attention. 
The headline, Ms. Dorothy Arnold Lost. There was a full description of Dorothy, and among the most interesting details in that article, Tom, quote, So far as could be learned, Ms. Arnold had only about 20 or $30 in her handbag. She had an allowance of $100 a month, but the only money she had with her was what remained of $36 she had drawn out of the bank the Thursday previous of her disappearance. She had been at luncheon at Sherry's with a number of college friends on Saturday, and her family didn't believe she could have had over $25 left, unquote. To be clear, though, $25 is about $600 or $650 of mm-hmm. spending today, so that's a girl could do quite a lot with that amount of money. Here's a printout of the January 26, 1911 story from the New York Times. The headline is interesting in itself. Niece of Peckham, strangely missing. Young woman relative of the late Supreme Court justice, gone since December 12th. Her aunt dying of grief. So I found it also interesting that the way that the press portrayed the entire story was actually through the lens, through the angle of her famous uncle. Indeed, that was how it was originally approached. But then oddly enough, Tom, her fame, the fame of her own name would eclipse that of her uncle. Due to the fame of this case, many people called in false testimonies and had reported all manner of unusual behavior that may or may not have been her. For instance, on January 26th, the world reported a mysterious woman who had attempted to buy men's clothing for the purpose of a disguise. Every single day was the front page of the newspaper. One day it was, Dorothy's been found in Philadelphia. And then, of course, the press followed her brother down to Philadelphia and traced every single one of his steps. And then the next day, the headline was, was not Ms. Arnold, but a Philadelphia girl who had eloped and was taken home. Mm. So starting on January 25th, when this thing explodes in the press, and then it's covered in the press daily, how in the world was the family and her father specifically reacting to all this attention? Yeah, I mean, it's quite traumatic. And this was on a family that was trained to speak to the press. So as a result, a lot of the interviews that they gave at this particular time seemed very confusing and even contradictory. Either the pressure was getting to them or perhaps they knew something again about this incident that they weren't revealing. For instance, Father Arnold here gave a really graphic interview. He had a very precise theory. He believed his daughter had been garroted in Central Park on her way home, and her body had been thrown into the reservoir. And as a result, the police then later dredged the water of Central Park, dredged the reservoir, and I'm not sure what they found, but they what they did not find was Dorothy Arnold. Well, had anybody considered that perhaps she had just eloped? She had just run what? off with somebody? That seems kind of obvious, right? In fact, Pinkerton's men, as little scandal had emerged when it was discovered that they had perused the city marriage licenses, uh-huh. scouring the records for her name and just assuming that she had just like gotten hitched and got out of there. Well, the press asked Mr. Arnold if Dorothy had any male suitors of any viable suitability, I guess. If you will. And he very harshly and very pointedly responded, quote, I would have been glad to have her associate with more young men, especially those of brain and position whose work keeps them occupied. I do not approve of men who have nothing to do. That is just 
shady enough to suggest <laughs> that perhaps he knew something. That he knew something or knew someone. And that someone, his name was George Griscombe, who would become a leading suspect in this case. And his presence in the story may reveal a world of secrets kept by Dorothy Arnold. We'll get to his story after the commercial break. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, Greg, before the break, you had introduced us to the character of George Briscoe, mm-hmm. who's notable for a number of reasons. He was from Pennsylvania. His family lived in a posh hotel in Pittsburgh. He was an engineer, and he was 42 years old. And Dorothy was 25. That's right. Now, a lot of things transpired in the days after her father went public to the press on January 25th, 1911. As you mentioned, the the newspapers were running stories daily on the strange case, chronicling every development, the clues, the whereabouts of family members. They even amped up the drama of how they portrayed the family members, showing them getting worked up, depressed, giving up hope at times, even as the policemen remained confident that they would find Dorothy, that she was still alive. Well, you certainly see now why they didn't want to call the police in the first place, because now they have all this undue attention. Right. Reporters started digging and found that just three months prior to her disappearance, Dorothy had told her parents that she was heading off for the week to spend time with an old college classmate in Boston. Instead, she spent the week there in a hotel with George. Oh, so she pulled the old switcheroo that many of us have done perhaps in our lifetime. Yes, but perhaps not this extravagantly, for she had to sell off $500 worth of jewelry just to cover the hotel bills. So when did they meet up again for the secret tryst? In Boston, that was just three months before she disappeared Hmm. in September. Now, George was preparing to head off to Europe with his parents. They were leaving on November 3rd. So the last time the two saw each other was in late October of 1910. Then he headed off to Europe. But according to her father's account, the family only knew about George after interviewing all of her New York friends. So his identity was not known before the disappearance. Yes, according to the press conference that his father gave, 
all that they knew was that Griscom was with his parents traveling around Europe, so they didn't even know where he was. And they didn't even know if Dorothy knew where he was in Europe as well. So his aunt in Pittsburgh informed the investigators that George was with his parents in Florence. The Arnold family had friends in Florence, coincidentally, and they sent them to interview George and find out if he could shed any light on the situation. He met up with them at his hotel, but there was nothing new to the story to add. He had nothing to add to the story? He was upset by the story, but he didn't have anything new, and he also wouldn't share the letters and the correspondence that he had brought along with him from Dorothy. But according to Dorothy's father, the family was satisfied that George was innocent, and the family denied to the press that there had been any secret uh, love affair in the first place, and nothing that the family had objected to. So it's confusing, because Mm. publicly, then, the family is kind of trying to, again, cover its tracks socially. And yet, clearly, it seems that he was not favored by the family either. Right. And perhaps they didn't completely trust him. So a few weeks later, in early January, on the 3rd, Dorothy's mother and brother John traveled by steamship to Europe, first to Paris, allegedly on business, and then down to Florence to find George for themselves and see if if they could get any more information out of him. So they just went off on their own for a little sleuthing adventure of their of their own here to find information. That's hmm. right. Perhaps disguised as a business trip because, you know, father was importing perfumes. Sure. And the press would have followed them along if not. They found him in Florence and they met up with him on January 16th, just 9 days before the press conference and tried to wrangle some new information from him, but he knew nothing. About two weeks later, in early February of 1911, he returned home and was immediately besieged by the press because at this point he had become famous or infamous as a potential suspect in the case. But no, he said, he was actually still very much in love with Dorothy and he believed that she was still alive. He insisted that once she was found, he intended to marry her And he actually started spending very heavily on newspaper ads all over the country. Ads that were not intended so much for the public, like her father, who had done a big outreach to Mm -hmm. the public to send in clues and any ideas that they might have. George Griscom's ads were actually intended for Dorothy, and they included the headline, Come Home. He still wanted to marry her. So George believed that she had in fact, run away, that she had escaped the trappings of her life here for whatever reason, but then left him behind, and but he was still pining for her. Or maybe she was intending to somehow head off to Europe and join him. She did have indeed have these folders of transatlantic passages that were found in her room. So perhaps she was intending to, to meet up with him, or in fact, just to go off on her own. And meanwhile, her father continued to receive everyday letters and postcards and telegrams from all over the country in which people were relaying different clues and insights that they had on the case, and he said that he read them all himself. That would certainly weigh heavily on a father, I'm sure. Some examples from January 26th, the day after they went public, from Buffalo. Dear sir, there is a lady here. She is sick in bed. She is insane. Come and see. 
two days later in New York. Dear sir, don't you think it might be possible that your daughter may have walked near the large lake in Central Park and perhaps to pick up something, went too near and stepped in? The lake always looks pretty, winter and summer, and she may have met with an accident and no one was near to help her. Signed, In Sympathy. So daily letters like this coming in, all of which he investigated. Well, those letters at least sound sympathetic. They sound like concerned citizens who are just want a little outreach to the family. Yeah, well, they weren't all so sympathetic, and he received multiple ransom notes. Two, in fact, which demanded $5,000 for her return, which were investigated again by the police and determined to be hoaxes. So where did this leave them? You know, they had searched all the marriage bureaus, and neither suicide nor murder seemed to make sense because there had been no body that turned up. Nor a note. And investigators had gotten word out to the different steamship lines as well, heading to Europe, and nobody had taken a ship to Europe that matched her description. Unfortunately, that particular summer of 1911, there was a young woman on board or who was traveling in Europe who was unfortunately named Dorothy Arnold. So the entire summer while she was in Europe, she was hounded by people Mm. who thought that she was the missing Dorothy Arnold. And so when she appeared back in New York, when she finally arrived, the press was there waiting for her. Mm. And she said, quote, I've been asked it all over Europe for over six months, and my patience is nearly gone, said the non-missing Dorothy Arnold. Well, Francis, Dorothy's father spent more than $100,000 on the investigation trying to find Dorothy. And in February of 1911, the police backed off the investigation a bit, convinced for the first time that Dorothy was no longer missing, but that she was presumed dead. Although in the months and years that would follow, the case would be cracked back open as more clues came forward. Yeah, what makes this a notable case today and makes it kind of a bizarre thing to look back on and to study is the longevity in the public imagination. I mean, it never really went away Mm. for many decades. The public continued to be obsessed with this and its many twists and turns. And indeed, a lot of events then transpired over the next decade that would bring this story very violently up in the headlines. It would always float from like page one to two to three and all the way to the back. And then something else would happen and all of a sudden it would be a front page story again. Now, when you mentioned all these ransom notes, blackmail, I mean, this sounds horrible. Even a postcard that said simply, I am safe, signed Dorothy. What a terrible thing to do to a family. But to really illustrate how out of control all of this gets, in spring of 1912, it took a really odd twist when a young African-American woman was arrested for blackmailing the Arnolds, one of the people who was accused of sending these horrible notes. Well, I only mentioned her race in the story because, of course, the public predictably took a a very loathsome view of this accused woman whose name, Bessie Green, her name was dragged through the press, but only to later be acquitted. She had nothing to do with any of these false letters, with these terrible letters that had been sent to the house. I only mentioned this particular episode just to underscore what a like a chaotic maelstrom of activity mm. that all of these crazy side events were happening that were almost like sideshows of this main disappearance. And kept it in the press. 
Dorothy Arnold's name became shorthand for any case that involved a missing society girl. You would even see headlines that had nothing to do with Dorothy Arnold, but it would be another missing woman, and they would describe it as a Dorothy Arnold case. Hmm. Now, a horrible discovery was made in 1914 in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, on a bluff overlooking the Ohio River. When a makeshift clinic in a dank basement was raided by the police and its doctor, a man named Dr. C.C. Meredith, was arrested, the press dubbed this curious place the House of Mystery. It was believed that many young women had entered into the House of Mystery, seeking its unique services, and then were never seen again. This was a place where women sought back alley abortions. One of the doctors who was arrested from this so-called house of mystery claimed that Dorothy Arnold had died at the clinic and that her body had been cremated in the furnace of the building. And this is four years after the disappearance? Yes, in 1914. This was a really huge story, as you could imagine, that made the national news. Although the testimony of this particular doctor... It was quickly dismissed by both the family and the police, although probably the family wanted to dismiss this for many reasons. There are some to this day, those modern-day sleuths who look back on this story, who actually believe that this was the fate of Dorothy Arnold. Now, a year later, in 1915, Dorothy Arnold was discovered in Hollywood, living under a different name, apparently. So by this time, many of the newspapers had run quite a number of illustrations of Dorothy Arnold and even a few photographs. So people knew who she was as though she was like an icon, a celebrity herself. So this poor woman who happened to strongly resemble Dorothy Arnold was living in Los Angeles, was living in Hollywood, and was harassed by several people who then claimed that she was Dorothy Arnold but was pretending not to be. As if she had headed out to L.A. to start fresh and have her own career. As many, many had done before her, actually. But it wasn't her. And, quote, owing to straightened circumstances, she was verging on a nervous breakdown, unquote. Now, the following year, in April of 1916, so now over five years after her disappearance, the story roars back into the public consciousness again because of an inmate in Rhode Island. His name was Edward Glenoris, and Glenoris testified that he had been hired to remove the body of Dorothy Arnold from a house in New Rochelle and bury it in a cellar, bury it underneath a house there. Now this in New Rochelle. In New Rochelle, so just north of the city. Now, this story, of course, was also relating to a back alley abortion clinic, but with a little extra twist for the person who Glenoris claimed hired him for this horrible job was none other than someone who fit the physical description of George Griscom. Mm. So this morbid story failed to pan out with any physical evidence either. And this is like five years after the event. And that was over five years after that particular event. Now, flash forward, over ten years. On April 8th of 1921, the story made the front pages again a decade after her disappearance 
when the chief of the Bureau of Missing Persons, in front of an entire auditorium of people at the High School of Commerce at West 66th Street over on the Upper West Side, he spoke from his lectern and, regarding this particular case, proclaimed, quote, All I can say is that it has been solved by the department. Dorothy Arnold is no longer listed as a missing person. I probably shouldn't have mentioned the case as it is a strictly confidential one in the department. Wait a second. So the police chief... The chief of the Bureau of Missing Persons... Actually said before an audience that she's no longer missing. That she's no longer missing, that, the, that they know what happened to Dorothy. The next day, there was another article that claimed that his quotes had been misrepresented in the press, which is kind of startling considering he was in front of an auditorium of people. So clearly some political strings were pulled and maybe he had said a little bit too much. Less than a year to the day after the chief's remarks, Mr. Arnold, Dorothy's father, died and he's buried today in Greenwood Cemetery. Now, in his will, he made a specific declaration, which is quite interesting. Quote, I have made no provision in this will for my beloved daughter, H.C. Dorothy Arnold, as I am satisfied that she is not alive. Unquote. And the very same statement appears in the will of his wife, who died several years later in 1928. Which I'm sure was a heartbreaking line for them to include, but they must have put it there out of fear that some other imposter would come along and make some kind of claim at some point. I mean, they had literally seen almost dozens of imposters by this point. Now I'm going to flash forward one more time. Flash forward to December 13th, 1950. So this is 40 years and one day after she went missing. Exactly. So this story still remained in the public consciousness. And I wanted to read a, a little clip from the New York Times. Dorothy Arnold disappeared 40 years ago yesterday. Each year on this date, the few known facts about one of New York's greatest mysteries are brought out at police headquarters. And there it is general agreement among police officials that this case is in a class by itself. She would be about 65 years old today if she were alive. There is no legal proof that she is not alive. Acting Captain John Cronin, in charge of the Missing Persons Bureau, said that since the police had no proof of her death or that she had gone away of her own free will, the case was listed as open. Today, there is no one at police headquarters who was there when Dorothy Arnold disappeared. Captain Cronin was nine years old at the time, unquote. That is one of the last major appearances of this particular story. So I think it's time, Tom, for us to maybe try to figure out for a minute why this story was so intriguing and... Captivating. Yes, perpetually in the consciousness mm. uh, for so many years. Especially when in 1910, a city that was filled with people of far less means... You know, there were other stories of other people who went missing uh, that were never, of course, reported upon and probably not at all investigated by the city's police yeah. department with the same zeal. Well, yeah, it's true, Tom. I mean, let's address the privilege in the room here, right? Is that these were, are the circumstances of a, a young, rich, beautiful, white society woman. You know, though, Greg, I would like to throw out one more th theory, and this is a quote from one of the detectives working for the family. 
When he spoke to the press on January 30th, 1911, he said, Another theory that we investigated thoroughly, Mr. Keith added, was this, did she for any reason, sane or insane, go out with the intention of trying to earn her own living? We questioned everyone she had known in the effort to find out if, to any of them, she had ever made any remarks that might have indicated such a desire on her parts. We wanted to know if she had tired of a life of ease and was anxious to go out into the world and, quote, do something herself, so to speak. This theory, like that of the men, was soon eliminated. But, you know, maybe we can hold up hope that maybe Dorothy did go forth and into the world. Well, I have a little proof that perhaps she did. So, as a little coda to our show here, an article that ran on December 8th, 1914. It was reported that Dorothy Arnold's personal Bible was found on a woman arrested in Texas. And she claimed that she stole it from a place in Mexico, that this Bible had somehow made its way to Mexico. The description of this object matched that of Dorothy's personal possession, and her family knew it very, very well, of course. So is it possible that Dorothy Arnold did, in fact, leave everything behind and become another person? So wait, is it possible that a little over three years later, when so many people were contacting the family to say that they were Dorothy Arnold, that perhaps the real Dorothy Arnold was trying to be somebody else? And to be anonymous and to finally be her own person. So that is a hopeful look at the end of her tale, that there may be people out there even living today who know of the final fate of Dorothy Arnold. Join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where Greg will be putting up many of the lovely portraits of Dorothy Arnold that were sent around by her family and published widely in the press. And I'll also have, because as you could tell on this show, we relied heavily on original news reporting even a bit more heavily than we usually do. And part of that is because it was so vivid and many times came with illustrations. There's one incredible illustration that detailed every single thing that she was wearing so that people could possibly identify her if they saw her on the street. You can also join us on Facebook, on Twitter, and Instagram. And while you're on the blog, click to sign up for our newsletter to always be on top of the latest Bowery Boys news. We'd like to say a special thanks to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boys. It is with the support of those who have joined us on Patreon that we've been able to double our output and come out with a new show every two weeks. And we have lots of extra little surprises and bonus episodes for those who join us on patreon.com slash boys. Now, as many of our longtime listeners know, our book, The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York, is finally here. It's being released this month. We've talked about it. We've hyped it. And now it's finally here. You can get it at your local bookstore or pre-order it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And we are super excited to have you finally look at this thing, and we hope you enjoy it. We will be hosting a number of live events this summer and fall in New York and around New York. We'll be letting you know more about those events on the show. And of course, if you sign up for our newsletter and join us on Facebook, you'll hear about it there as well. 
So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.